welcome to the fourth episode of Cleaning Up. My guest today is Barbara Buchner. She's the Global Managing Director of the Climate Policy Initiative, one of the most influential think tanks working on finance, policy, and economics of climate change. They publish the Global Landscape for Climate Finance, which is the benchmark for how much money is flowing into climate solutions in the developed and developing worlds. She also runs the Global Innovation Lab for Climate Finance. And I'm going to uh, put this out there right at the beginning. I helped her. I was one of the early partners, one of the early principals, and I've been involved more or less uh, over the last seven or eight years since that was initiated. It's put more than $2 billion to work uh, in climate solutions, mainly in the developing world. And we'll certainly be talking about that. In 2014, Barbara was designated one of the 20 most influential women in climate change and climate policy by the International Council for Science. International Council for Science. Um, now, interestingly, they only said she was one of the top 100 people overall in climate policy. And so we are going to be talking about gender as well. So um, I first met Barbara when she was running something called the San Giorgio Group. And the San Giorgio Group was absolutely fabulous because every year it invited me to Venice to talk about clean energy, climate, and other uh, interesting matters. Uh, and of course, I couldn't resist. I went to Venice, I met Barbara, and here we are today. So I've got myself a very nice Marques de Riscal red wine, and I'm going to bring Barbara into the conversation. Good evening, Barbara. Good morning to you, Michael. Great to see you. Good. I know, did you notice that, everybody? Good evening, <laughs> good morning. So I am in Europe. I'm in Switzerland. Barbara is in... San Francisco. Still a little too early for wine, unfortunately, but uh, I'm with you in my spirit. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I should be drinking coffee and not wine. If, I, uh, if I'm, I'm being a little bit uh, cheeky here, but it is towards the end of the day uh, here in Switzerland. So um, let's start with uh, the Climate Policy Initiative, and we'll fill in uh, various parts of your background and your story uh, along the way. But um, tell me, tell everybody, what is it? Sure, and no, I'm very happy to do so. So Climate Policy Initiative, we are basically an advisory analytical organization. We got funded now a little over 10 years ago, actually at the end of 2009, with the overall goal of helping governments, uh, financial institutions and businesses really drive economic growth while addressing climate change. So, so this like overall thought of how can we really shift the economy in a, in a better way was, was really kind of the, the core motivation for, for CPI. Uh, we now have um, offices around the world. We have offices in um, the UK, uh, here in the US, uh, but also in Indonesia and in India, in Brazil and in, uh, in Kenya. And we have about like 90 analysts that work with us overall. And what we are mostly known for is first like really tracking sustainable investment trends, really understanding, you know, showing what's the benchmark at the moment, where are we in terms of overall plans. But also we are known for like um, developing some of the uh, innovative business models that really can uh, help make a transition towards a low carbon climate resilient future. And we are also, I think, a, a niche that we have is really being able to bring the right people to the table 
and like bringing a very strong analytical and rigorous analysis um, that, that really helps kind of inform uh, the decision making by policymakers and financial actors. Let me stop. So that's a great summary. Um, and embedded in there is something very, very important, which is although you're called the Climate Policy Initiative, you work on business and finance and economics, right? Your theory of change is not um, one of these kind of, you know, it's not degrowth and it's not about heavy government regulation and uh, top down. It is very much a kind of, I would know, I, I'll, I'll let you explain, but it seems uh, from your description and from my knowledge of it to be very um, sort of market compatible. Is, is that fair? That is very fair and to be very open with you, Michael, I probably, you know, would choose a different name today, you know, than, than a little over 10 years ago when, when we got started, uh, just because I do Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. What would you call it if you started it today? <laughs> yeah, you know, I've thought about, you know, you're very good on the acronym, so I'm going to use you like one day. So I'm going to, you know, I'm just using us more in our acronym at the moment, like PPI instead of Climate Policy Initiative. I do think we are, you know, I think what we really need to do, um, and what I really want to make sure um, as we start our second decade of, of CPI is that we become mainstream. I don't want to be, you know, in a niche of like climate considerations. What I really want to make sure is, and what we have our work, what has really, you know, we've tried to do over the last decade is really showing that, you know, building a, a better future, like investing in um, a, a more sustainable future you know, makes sense for you and me, makes sense for businesses. It's like, it, it is something that really can, uh, you know, I think the market itself should kind of uh, be following more of the, uh, the greener kind of guidelines. So I think what, what I really would love to have is more being a kind of more mainstream, um, you know, economic institute, like financial, you know, advisory organization that really can help um, make sure that climate change is like factored into every decision uh, on, on both the public and private side in, in the market. When you say advisory organization, uh, you don't mean giving individual sort of corporate advisory, company consulting, uh, banking type, that you mean still presumably doing these tremendous analyses of the landscape and communicating and tracking changes over time. Is that correct? That is fully correct. I think, again, I think what, how we distinguish ourselves a little bit from other organizations really being grounded in very strong, rigorous analysis. Again, I think this is, you know, we want to bring the evidence that then helps decision makers making the right decision. So we are not kind of a consultancy. We are really here to, to kind of provide sound evidence that can help you, uh, you know, change your hopefully decision making going forward. Well, that's right. So we first met, I think it was a San Giorgio meeting in Venice, yeah. but um, very soon after that, we were talking about your, your, your analysis of the um, uh, global capital flows, where you came to, at the time, I was still running uh, what was Bloomberg New Energy Finance, but probably only had just become that, uh, had mm -hmm. just been acquired by Bloomberg. And you came, you wanted access to our data on investment flows in clean energy, which is a part of uh, the, the global uh, tracking that you do. Talk about that report, sort of where did it come from and uh, what is it, where did it come from and what its impact has been? Oh yeah, that, so uh, where did it come from? To be very open with you, we started CPI and you know there was, um, you know, Copenhagen COP was going on and everyone was talking about climate finance and no one really understood, uh, you know, including myself, what is climate finance? You know, what does it mean? 
you know, what, what types of flows are we talking about? Who is involved in it? What types of instruments are being used to distribute, you know, money that is basically targeting, you know, activities to reduce emissions or to make, um, you know, societies more resilient. So really, what is this um, climate finance? And so, as I am, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm economist, so, you know, I love data. So, you know, I just wanted to, to start kind of compiling all the available data on how much money is flowing from which type of sources, through which type of instruments, uh, towards which types of end users and to which geographies. So that's basically in a, in a snapshot that the landscape. So we provide really a snapshot of financial flows um, every year and showing who basically is behind this flow. So, you know, what are the public and private sources behind the flow and where does the money end up? And the, the, the goal is really to also highlight, you know, where are entry points to scale up investments and how can we really do that? So I think that's where it came from, like trying to, I thought it's a one-off uh, one study to be very open with you. I thought I'm doing that one time and that's it um, because it's a lot of work to bring all the data together. And BNF data is still kind of one of our, the major databases we use for, for the private side of the, of the, the overall landscape. But I think that impact it has had is, is pretty big. We've actually helped uh, inform uh, ultimately also the negotiations uh, that led to the Paris Agreement. Uh, it's been widely used uh, by, by negotiators, but it's also been used and more and more particular on the, on the national scale where we've done a number of national landscapes really help uh, governmentals understand how money is being spent you know how can you use money more effectively to ultimately have an impact and i think this is just like where we want to go next is actually really focus more on okay we know how much money is flowing we've seen a, you know constant increases in the trends over the last uh, you know almost like eight years nine years that we've been doing it but i think we still need to understand much better you know how um, you know, effective are we, you know, using the money, how, you know, what's the impact of the money and how can we really make sure that we kind of you know, use money in a much more, you know, transformative way um, uh, to, to really kind of get an, an, an impact on, on climate change, uh, adaptation, mitigation. Okay, now there's a lot going on in that answer and I'd like to sort of, I'd like to pick it apart a bit and, and, and dive into a few aspects of it. You know, there will be people watching this, at least I hope there'll be people watching this, um, who won't really recall all of the toing and froing at Copenhagen, the COP meeting, the conference of the parties of the, um, of the uh, UN uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change. Copenhagen was billed as this kind of one-off uh, chance to save the planet, and, um, and it all ended up horribly deadlocked, was probably regarded, uh, is probably regarded as a failure by most people, but there was this one extraordinary commitment that was made, and it's called the Copenhagen Commitment, which is that the developed world would, it would provide $100 billion per year in climate finance to the developing world. Uh, and that was in 2009. So I'm guessing that that $100 billion, it became very contested, of course, because there was no definition. So a lot of developing countries thought, well, that's going to be a check from the governments of the developed world. And a lot of developed world countries said, uh, and political leaders said, no, 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 no. We meant that our financial institutions, our private sector, our private investors would provide lots of money. That's, uh, that's going to be fine, isn't it? So I guess that's the world that you stepped into to try to say, okay, well, we don't know the answer to who meant what, what the definitions are, but at least let's measure it. Is that, is that a fair characterization of the kind of what was going on back there? 
lots was going on and you, uh, very, very good characterization, Michael. I think we really tried to just start again, as we do with our work, start providing some, you know, analytical basis for, you know, some more political discussions about like ultimately for the action that needs to happen. So, you know, again, we in our work do not focus on the 100 billion on purpose because there's still today uh, lots of initial issues with that, still today, I wanna just say 2020. Uh, but what we do is like, we, we are very transparent of what we count, you know, we provide a global snapshot. So we wanna really not only show how much money is going from the developed to the developing country, but we wanna really show ultimately how are we doing against our overall temperature targets, that 1.5 degrees target, you know, the overall kind of targets to getting our world on a, on a better uh, pathway. So, so that was really the, the goal was, and the goal still is, to inform, you know, um, other processes to, to provide the right uh, kind of evidence base, the right uh, kind of, um, you know, understanding to, to kind of decision makers who used in our data. But yes, uh, good characterization. Okay, so this figure of $100 billion per year that was supposed to flow north-south from the developed world to the developing yeah. world, um, what are the pieces of that? What was that supposed to cover? Because obviously, at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, we could help you with the clean energy investment piece, but that's far from all climate finance, isn't it? It's far from all climate finance. And I think, um, again, what it is supposed still to cover and still working on it is all public and private sources. So it can come from public and private sources, but it goes beyond uh, renewable energy. It is really kind of all mitigation adaptation. What does that mean? That encompasses not only renewable energy, but also energy efficiency, but then on the adaptation side, I think that's that's a bigger piece still to be um, unpicked. Oh, I think adaptation is a huge story that we've barely begun to explore yeah. from a finance, economics and policy uh, perspective. Adaptation is happening everywhere, but nobody uh, really knows where it is and where it's going. You've probably got the best uh, picture of anybody. But I just wanted to um, just to clarify, and that 100 billion was the North South, but you track everything, developed world, developing world, energy, adaptation, um, land use, all of the flows of money that are addressing the climate challenge. Is that right? That is right. And again, what we do is it's not that we ourselves track apart from some smaller service that we do with development finance institutions, for example, but we really try to bring together different types of data sources from BNF, but also from the OECD, you know, from, from other, you know, data collectors out there, we really try to really make sure that there is no double counting, but there's, there's a really good basis on, on how much money is out there. Okay, and now the, well, I was going to say the billion dollar question, but it's almost the trillion dollar question. What is the number? Where are we? So actually in 2017, for the first time, we crossed the, the half trillion mark. We are now uh, around 569 billion on an average that the last two years, 2017, 2018. Um, uh, in in overall flows and and again I, I think that's that's a, it's a good news I think we have seen constant increases and uh, we are trying we usually try to give actually two years number just because uh, it it better you know kind of corrects and takes into fluctuations between you know single years uh, but that is where we are like we, we crossed the half trillion so that certainly is good news but you obviously know that uh, we need we need far more. Well, that's a good question because, you know, a trillion here, a trillion there, pretty soon you're talking real money. But what does it need to be? If we were really to see, you know, I published something just before Christmas saying uh, peak emissions are closer uh, than you think. 
Um, obviously, that was before COVID, and we've seen them drop this year. They'll presumably or possibly, uh, depending on what we do, bounce back. Um, but if we really wanted to see not just peak emissions, but the global economy on track for net zero to address climate, as we all, I think, uh, would like to, to do, what does that number need to be on an annual basis? Are we halfway there? Are we a third of the way there? Are we 10% of the way there? Or are we 80% of the way there? Well, you know, that, that is a good question to be very open with you. There, there is still a lot of uncertainties on the exact numbers. There is a number of studies out there that are trying to just, just because particularly on the adaptation side, there is so much uncertainty still of, of you know, what are the needs and how you, even methodological um, issues. What I use usually as a, as a figure just to compare a little bit of where we are today and, and where we need to go. And it's, it's, it's actually more apples to oranges. But if you look at the IPCC numbers uh, of what is needed just in the energy sector uh, per year to getting us on a, a, a low carbon energy system, uh, that is between 1.6 uh, and 3.8, uh, I think, trillion US dollars per year. So uh, obviously out of our like 580 billion, the energy sector is only a share. It's the largest share because of the better data, amongst others because of DNF. But um, it's still kind of, you know, it just shows that we are falling far short of where we need to be if we want to get in on, on this kind of 1.5 degree or below um, uh, a pathway. So I was just, as you were speaking, trying to triangulate and see if I can answer that question, at least from the energy perspective. And um, there's around $2 trillion per year invested in energy around the world. That's upstream oil and gas, midstream, downstream, renewable energy, the electrical grid, uh, all right across the board. And there's about 700 billion invested in clean energy, so renewables, energy efficiency, and so on, and the electrical grid. There's still uh, about uh, 1.3 uh, trillion that's invested elsewhere in the energy system. So from energy alone, I would say we're about a third of the way there, because clearly what we need is the clean stuff to grow so that we're not doing anything but the clean stuff. Um, yeah. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's only, maybe we're halfway there because there's some pieces, I don't know, we may end up doing some synthetic fuels and still, you know, needing to invest in midstream ref chemical refineries and so on. So it's not as simple as just saying it all has to be wind and solar, clearly not. Um, but I think we're between a half to, we're between a third and a halfway there. Um, but my goodness, adaptation, I mean, because yeah. it's very difficult to say what is going to be just upgrading the infrastructure for the emerging economies as they get wealthier and making them uh, safer and more resilient anyway. And what is the climate piece? Do you try and unpick that at all? Or you just say, it just needs to be a big number. We know that. Well, I think we don't have the, the full picture, uh, the, the figures yet. We are trying to kind of make progress on the methodologies, like really, you know, what is development, what's the boundaries between adaptation and development, you know, what's the incremental part. We also very differently count mitigation finance, like, you know, kind of we, we count renewable energy finance very different to adaptation finance, where usually we just count the, the incremental part. So there's lots of issues just on the methodological side. But again, just coming back to our overall landscape figures, what we are currently able to track in terms of uh, figures for adaptation finance is 5% is of the overall global number that we have. Again, lots of data issues, lots of methodological issues, but I do think it just um, shows you again that the overall challenge that we face and the real need 
to kind of just think, um, I think, you know, in, in total, you know, disruptive, innovative way on how can we really make this um, adaptation resilience finance um, more attractive to investors, particularly in today, you know, in, in times as, as today. So I am filled with awe at the work you do, because if anybody um, watching or listening thinks that this is easy, just you know, think about one thing. So, for instance, um, you, climate change causes uh, increases in forest fires. And so adaptation means you protect yourself from forest fires. But at the same time, countries are getting wealthier and people are moving out and beginning to live in and amongst forests. So if you stop those new uh, communities or new buildings from burning is that adaptation or is that part of I mean what what is it and how does your methodology uh, cope with that you must have a million sort of edge cases like that that you have to deal with every year um, how do you kind of so each year you have to get yourself kind of psyched up to to go back and do this once again or is it now pretty mechanical and you sort of do the same thing as last year and get the same data sources and it sort of does itself Oh, now we, we continue to push ourselves because again we know that we you know i think the goal from the beginning was to improve the overall understanding of what is climate finance i think we have done in, and, and not only ourselves i think we work with a wide range of partners from again development finance institutions to data providers to you know the OECD and others to really kind of try to push you know what we know and like and become better in, in in our understanding so we continue to expand our data sources our data coverage um, and my big uh, dream and i hope something that we will be starting to do more is actually not having only a climate finance landscape anymore but really kind of being able to complement that with more investments on the fossil fuel side you know the high emission investments to really get a good picture of how we are uh, actually you know basically moving in the right direction because i think you know, again, it's good to continue to get increases on the on the on the green side, on the on the climate finance side, but I think we got to also get a better understanding of how we are doing in terms of the high emission investment and whether there is, you know, a, a shift happening um, uh, in you know in, in due time. Well, you can see that um, as somebody who's built big data sets of of finance flows, uh, I'm just you know I'm fascinated by your process of unpicking these methodologies. But I want to move on to the lab. So the, uh, it's, it's the Global Innovation Lab for Climate Finance. Uh, where did it come from? Uh, how does it work? Yeah, the lab. So again, uh, you, you have been helping us a lot at the very beginning on, on making it uh, become what it is today. So where did it come from? It actually became, came out of um, an initial um, process of, of brainstorming process from the climate finance ministerial. So that was like donor countries um, who were, you know, more thinking about how can they use public finance more effectively in order to, to unlock, you know, overall capital for, for climate investment. So the, the original discussions were really, uh, and they were informed by, you know, thinking that we have done together with you actually also on like, you know, how can we become how can we really harness the, the, the entrepreneurs, the, lot, the, the innovative thinking that we know is happening in many places in order to come up with some, some uh, concrete projects and, and financial instruments that really can unlock private investment at scale? Because again, coming back to our figures from before, 
public finance, you know, uh, is, is um, public resources more generally, obviously, you know, are the engine behind the climate finance at the moment and extremely important also in terms of the, the, um, the policies and regulatory frameworks. But if we want to get to the, to the trillions or the figures, the needs that, we, that, that there are, we know that we need to really kind of engage the private sector at scale in order to close the, the current investment gap. So the lab came out um, of this initial thinking there. We have uh, refined it then um, by putting together basically a, a membership of um, financial institutions, uh, both on the public and private side, uh, to really help us uh, see how can we crowdsource innovative ideas, how can we develop and vet them by again incorporating the expertise of both public and private investors, and how can we then help to really get them off the ground. So in a nutshell, uh, the lab is um, a competitive uh, process. It's an incubator uh, where we, again, as, as CPI, my organization, we are the secretariat. So we are having a call for years every year where we, you know, we, we collect, we gather um, uh, ideas, uh, submissions for financial instruments. So it's really focused on addressing barriers to uh, investors in the market, to the private investors particularly. And then uh, we use our lab membership, which is composed by, you know, development finance institutions, governments, but also commercial banks, institutional investors, and other private sector participants to really kind of vote for the most promising ideas. And the winners then get about six to nine months of technical support from, from my teams, where we work again with the lab members, the investors, to really uh, give them, develop basically the, the financial instruments from more of a concept stage, an early stage, into a, a bankable project, a project that really is ready uh, to go to market. And maybe let me just stop here and uh, let's uh, dig a little bit deeper than where we have arrived. So in the early years, um, uh, particularly I was you know, quite involved because I was what was called a principal. And so these ideas... You still are. Been, you still are. I, well, I... I I, I still am a principal, uh, although I couldn't find myself on your website, and we need to work mm. on that. I mean, maybe, oh, I, maybe, maybe that was my mistake. <laughs> Probably was my mistake, but uh, but I did check today before this conversation. Um, uh, but but just to be clear, so this is you call it an incubator, but it's really an accelerator, isn't it? I mean, these are not your ideas. They are you we. we you, we go out into the world and say, what looks promising? What could get a lot of money flowing into these solutions? And then they get worked into this kind of very um, uh, um, systematic presentation. And then the principles, which I'm delighted, by the way, to say that I'm still a principal, and I promise that I'll, I'll be more diligent in my principling. Um, uh, uh, but then also the members select the ones that they want to promote and, and, and set up um, or help to raise funds and, and put money to work. Um, so I guess, first of all, what have I missed? Is that a good characterization of the process? And if it is, then um, there's this figure out there of $2 billion. I don't know if it's up to date. I don't know if it's up to date. So maybe you've got some, uh, some newer figures. How are we doing? How's the lab doing? Yeah, and the characterization is spot on. And I just checked, obviously, uh, you are on the website. So um, we, we are still having you <laughs> on the book. But yeah, no, we have. And again, the lab, we got inaugurated in 2014 in London, actually. And uh, by, we are now in our sixth lab cycle. And uh, in these um, um, years since 2014, what we've managed to do is to, to uh, develop um, more than 40 instruments, you know, 41 instruments. Um, and uh, those have collectively mobilized uh, more than 2 billion. So we're about at 2.1 now. We continue to count, but you're, you're pretty 
uh, on spot there. But yeah, we've managed to to help collectively through the lab instruments mobilize more than two billion US dollars for concrete projects, both on the mitigation and adaptation side. So again, across uh, different sectors and uh, and and specific, uh, also specifically on some of the harder sectors where we've tried to focus more uh, over the last years. And, and can you um, give a couple of examples of instruments, uh, or as many as you want, but give some examples of instruments. I mean, what sort of thing counts as an instrument? What are we talking about here? Sure. Well, for example, we've had um, a one which is an energy savings insurance, which really addresses the issue that uh, particular in you know developing countries, in particular for small and medium enterprises, very often you know kind of get making sure that you invest in um, in energy efficient technologies that might have some higher upfront costs and maybe maybe you know you as a as as a me you're not really familiar and you don't trust that they will really help you save energy, and um, so you don't make this investment. So with this energy savings insurance. And basically have a product that helps you uh, you know guarantee in a way the performance of this high upfront cost so you as an investor as a, as a as a small and medium enterprise you just feel more confident of investing into into these types of technologies which help you ultimately save and um, save energy and save money uh, but again you are now through this energy savings insurance product you're actually sure uh, that uh, you have a basically a performance guarantee. So that is one of the one of the instruments that we've had. But we've had a range of different um, business models and instruments coming out um, of the uh, of the lab. Another one is a very large scale. It's called um, the Climate Investor One, uh, where you basically combine um, three facilities in one in order to reduce transaction costs and and in a way kind of again accelerate. Um, accelerate uh, the, 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 the investments into, uh, in this case, like renewable energy projects, but they're now in their second phase, actually. And it's basically combining a preparation, uh, project preparation facility with a construction finance facility with a refinance facility. And again, this one is certainly one of the, uh, one of their successful um, instruments from, from, from the lab. And we're currently seeing whether we can replicate that for the water sector as well to, to just expand it from, from the energy sector to others. Um, there is a number of um, you know, additional ones, uh, both on the insurance side, we've been focusing more on mangroves insurance, for example, you know, coming up in how can you make sure that you, you conserve and restore mangroves um, uh, as, uh, as a really critical part of the, of the ecosystem. Um, but we've been also looking at you know, energy access instruments on, on we're really thinking about, you know, how can you how can you make sure that you you provide the right financing to uh, to some of the technologies. Okay, so maybe just to to share us an example from the adaptation side. Uh, one of um, I think the first uh, commercial investment vehicles uh, for adaptation um, finance um, is Craft, uh, which uh, we have been developing over the last few years with the Lightsmith Group. And Graft is um, basically focusing on expanding the availability of technologies and solutions for climate adaptation and resilience. And really thinking about like being kind of a, a more boring and like a more kind of um, a standard uh, private um, equity growth uh, fund that really been invested in a number of companies that already today um, have proven technologies and solutions uh, that uh, really can help to uh, together with kind of an accompanying technical assistance facility to scale investments into resiliency 
uh, and adaptation in developing countries. But um, just to say, we have uh, again more than 40 instruments here uh, that range from insurance vehicles to funds to even platforms where we help kind of uh, also increase the capacity um, of local financial institutions uh, to do some specific larger scale um, um, instruments like craft that I've just mentioned. Okay, so look, I love this because in a way it just builds on my initial thesis when I started New Energy Finance as it then was, which is that uh, if money flows into clean energy solutions, then we will make progress on climate change and probably, by the way, on lots of social development and, uh, and, and uh, improving human well-being across the world. But if money doesn't flow, then that won't happen. And so what you're essentially saying is with your global landscape, you first tracked all the money and now you've got an accelerator program, which right across the same landscape just goes in and finds ways of helping more money get to work. And the more money gets to work, the more impact we're gonna have. So, um, I mean, it's all music to my ears, of course, which is why I became a lab principal in the first place. Um, but it really spans some very large financial institutions, but it goes right the way down to supply chain players that might be um, in the supply chain of large uh, agribusinesses but are really out there in the rural areas in places that have got very poor access to finance. Is that correct? That is very correct. And I think particularly what we've seen, you know, after a few years of the lab, one of the lessons is that uh, the model really works in, in the sense of really finding some innovative solutions for particularly for the sectors that are harder. So like you said, like, you know, the rural uh, sectors, we have a specific, we have started doing specific streams in order to really foster some more innovative thinking for cer certain areas like, you know, cities, like, you know, nature-based solutions, like, um, uh, again, the, uh, you know, sustainable agriculture in Africa. So I think we've really tried uh, to, to kind of use this, this model to kind of try to trigger more innovative uh, thinking and solutions for the harder sectors and really getting them also by becoming more regional and like having also some regional lab programs, really getting them to, to where they're needed. That's right, because you've got programs in India and Brazil and uh, any others? So we have an initial uh, Southern Africa stream that we're piloting this year with um, the support of the, the Development Bank of Southern Africa. What we try usually to do is really have kind of a local, you know, a, a, an anchor uh, institution that works with us. But ultimately, we would love to make sure that we really kind of build up more regional hubs, um, certainly also for Africa, like a number of those and, and more Latin America expanding it from Brazil. Because what we see is that this, this having this uh, local uh, investors that help us really develop the instruments from an idea into a, a real project are really the key of, of making sure that we develop them in a way that really kind of accelerates investments. Well, let me know if I can help with that Africa hub, because I've been doing some, uh, some, some initial, I mean, having some very interesting discussions with Africa, Great Green Wall and the African Union. And I've done lots of stuff, as you know, in Africa over the years. But you, you also, there's, in addition to the uh, global landscape of climate finance and the global innovation lab, there is a sort of third leg to what you do, which is producing a stream of research, or I don't know if it's you'd call it research or collaborations. And um, you mentioned one, the last time we met virtually was on cities. Um, so that presumably, I mean, do you see it as the third leg of what you do? You sort of filling in and 
and, and, and working on other areas that are not quite captured perhaps by those first two. Uh, and um, you know, what else have you got? You've got cities, anything else? Yeah, definitely. Just on the three legs, you're fully right. I think, you know, we started with the, the landscape, the, the, um, giving an overview of in sustainable investment trends, to, you know, having a benchmark. And we actually start after that, we kind of went into understanding, okay, now we know what's out there. Let's start to analyze, like do some good, you know, analysis of how effective finance is being used today. This is like our effectiveness stream. And only after that, we actually have seen that even if we use existing financial vehicles more effectively, you need to still come up with new ideas, which is the lab and other, you know, transformative finance uh, projects that we run, particularly also in, in India, where we also run a project preparation facility. But the second lag that you mentioned, I think we do a lot on around the cities, particularly I think cities we see uh, are really key in, in making sure that, uh, you know, cities is where I think we have about 70% of future investments will happen in cities. So we need to make sure uh, that we really, you know, help again, um, do you know analysis that can inform what are specific you know tools that can be used um, in order to scale up investments in cities but also how can we bring together the different initiatives and partnerships and like organizations that work on cities so so that the uh, cities climate finance leadership alliance that we're running is, is one of these projects where we really try to and foster this kind of also you know this, this cities are really fascinating you're right there's sort of 70 percent of the uh, investment yeah. Um, cities drive 70% of emissions around the world. Um, and it's very easy for mayors or municipalities to say, oh, we're going to go climate neutral. I think, um, you know, by, oh, let's choose a number, 2050, 2040. Uh, the mayor of London has said 2030. But of course, most of what happens in cities, uh, cities are vibrant, but they're vibrant because they bring together private players everywhere in the world. Um, the investment flows are dominated by private players, not by what the municipality happens to do with its buildings or in its energy purchases. So is there any single, you know, if you can give kind of one summary of how do you get cities to, to, to sort their climate impact out? What's it going to be from that work stream? Well, I think how we work with, again, we, you know, we bring our kind of skill set, the niche that we have and, and the, the networks that we have is really the financial institutions. How we interact with cities is actually mostly at the moment through the city networks. So in our alliance, we actually have all the different city networks from C40 to, you know, to, to ICLE, to GCOM, uh, all the different kind of uh, city networks really helping us to make sure that the work we develop is actually getting, you know, is informed by the needs of cities, but at the same time also addresses them and really how, how we can scale up um, uh, information there. One of the work streams we have under this project is around enabling environments. So we kind of do research on what are regulatory, you know, uh, frameworks or like what are kind of policies that have helped actually uh, attract investments um, to, to the cities and, you know, how can we make sure that, for example, development finance institutions have a chance to directly, you know, lend to cities or provide investments um, that, that can be taken up by, by cities. So I think this is one of the, one of the areas we're working with, with cities and, um, and just making, but again, I think we work really, we try to make sure that we always work in, in, in partnership with others, because again, I think we bring the specific skill sets around um, the financial and, and the policy analysis, uh, but we, you need to, to have, um, others that really can, are, are closer to cities and can help build the capacity. So I think we kind of provide, even like, you know, thinking about how can we come, come up with like, 
ways uh, of trainings for, for city officials uh, to really kind of uh, be aware of the opportunities um, also in the investment space. But I suspect there's a sort of generalizable methodology that you have to first start by measuring what is flowing, how much money is flowing. And yeah. then you can start to go into things like best practices and you can have an accelerator program and then you can go and do deep dives into particular sort of knotty problems that are not being solved. So I suspect that what you've done with the climate uh, landscape, then lab, then dive into cities, you can probably replicate at the city level. First map it, then uh, produce some, You're then accelerate some solutions and then uh, go into specifics. So, uh, uh, so it's, uh, it, it all sounds very kind of uh, rational and logical. But of course, I'm just saying, like you just like sorry, I just said you just described basically CPI's theory of change. So that's that's good. So you know, it's how we work so in, uh, on different. It, it count it, accelerate it, and then deep dive, rinse and repeat. Very good. <laughs> uh, but of course, one of the things um, that we've not spoken about yet, but that dramatically is impacting cities today, is of course COVID, and. You know, a lot of what we've talked about is your history and what you've been doing up until today. But you have also uh, deployed a team um, to, uh, on, on something that you, you're calling um, bailouts for a better world. Um, so t tell me about bailouts for a better world. Is it uh, a piece of work that you've already completed? Uh, and what have you done with it? Where is it going? Yeah, I, again, I think as, as everyone probably around the world, you know, you know once the pandemic happened, like, trying to understand how can we really help uh, inform this this um, the recovery efforts and like make sure that we build for for a better work so we have only started and um, Michael to, to be frank again you know we started with our our usually first approach understanding what's happening and you know doing that also through convenings that we have had both with this um the cop 26 presidency and, and germany to, to bring together again actors from across the, the finance um, ecosystem to really understand what are needs, what are, you know, even though you wanna, don't want to call it opportunities, but what are opportunities as we will come to the recovery phase. We have, um, in the context of the lab, actually, our first uh, element that we see as part of this, this bigger, you know, bailouts for a better, better work, uh, work stream, which is like really showing out of our lab pipeline, which are the shovel-ready ones. So which are the ones that are ready now, today, as soon as investment is ready to get deployed again so which are the ones that that can uh, that, that are ready to be implemented basically now so that's kind of the first piece the second piece that we're currently um, preparing is um, a new project around um, which has two parts one is around um, uh, principles uh, for financing a sustainable recovery so really again bringing together uh, the stakeholders from across the, the finance ecosystem and also public policy ecosystem to, uh, and in, you know, informed by our analysis, basically come up with principles that hopefully, particularly the public um, um, public um, side, uh, can commit to um, uh, to really follow going forward to make sure that not only in the in the short term uh, you know rescue efforts, but in the longer term recovery efforts, that there is a real clear framework that guides uh, this investment. So I think this is the one part. Okay, so the second component of, of the work we're doing is along, around financial blueprints. And there will be, again, we would love to have your 
for your your input on that, uh, Michael. But I think um, a number of the blueprints we're going to look into is both recovery bonds, where you really use the the savings from hopefully um, fossil fuel um, uh, subsidy removals uh, to uh, finance uh, kind of resilience in cities and in other parts, or like social safety nets, or you know um, accelerated coal retirement. Something also you've been looking at. Uh, a lot, but also trying to come up with, you know, what are financial blueprints for um, climate for um, debt swaps and other, you know, ideas there. So I think this is a, a new um, a wave of work we want to focus on very strongly now, uh, particularly I think because it's so important to do that as quickly as possible. And we're doing it also particularly in some of our country offices, um, mostly in, in India actually, where we see a real opportunity now to come up very quickly with some of this um, financing, you know, transitioning schemes that could help um, going towards a better, uh, better future. Very interesting. And, um, you know, yes, we're in, you know, July of COVID-19 year, and clearly uh, we're going to be dealing with the economic aftermath. I mean, hopefully, hopefully this tragic pandemic, we will work through the health issues, but clearly balance sheets have just been destroyed at government level, personal level, uh, institutions of all sorts and we're going to be working on this for some time. There are quite a few groups. IEA has published its Green Recovery. Actually I don't know if you read, um, I wrote uh, about how uh, energy efficiency has to be at the heart of stimulus programs. I called it the Swiss army knife of stimulus funding because um, if you do energy efficiency programs you put money into the pockets of people right away who are going to spend it. So builders, plumbers, uh, plasterers, etc. Um, but also you make our asset base more uh, efficient. So there's a long-term stimulus. And of course it helps uh, in a very essential way, uh, climate action. So, um, uh, you know, that's my pitch to put energy efficiency deeply into what you're doing. Uh, so if you have a, a chapter on that work about financing, it should really be dedicated to energy efficiency. I, you know, I hope you're doing that. Couldn't agree more, and obviously, you know, I'm reading all you, all you write, so I have read that one, and I do agree. I think, um, I think it's, it is that, you know, I think energy efficiency is one of these areas that we still haven't uh, really kind of managed to to address. I mean, we all know that it is, you know, uh, it is uh, extremely important first for for achieving a transition, and it really is something which can help you achieve the savings. But I don't think we still have um, managed to to at least kind of widely distribute the ways of, of investing in energy efficiency. So certainly a, a key yeah. you know, area of it. So I, we've just published, I was a uh, member of the Commission for Urgent Action on Energy Efficiency with the IEA. We published 10 recommendations uh, of which number four is about um, uh, mobilizing finance. So it does feel to me like a lot of the folks working on this kind of build back better, um, better bailouts or uh, uh, bailouts for what is it you call it? Uh, bailouts for a uh, bailouts for a better world. Uh, you've got Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which is tracking uh, the yeah. bailouts. And by the way, at the moment, a tiny proportion of the bailouts to date have been green. So yeah. you know, if you were to use your theory of change, you'll probably spend the next few years uh, working maybe with Bloomberg New Energy Finance, tracking exactly what is happening, and then trying to tilt it towards the better bailouts. And I. I wish you good luck with that. Um, so I just want to um, move on to, um, you know, what, what do you think the next few years bring? Because, um, you know, both, both in terms of 
sort of climate, but also in terms of your work, the climate policy initiative. Um, you know, we are in the middle of this extraordinary, it's a pivotal year, it was a pivotal year before COVID, but it became even more pivotal now with the pandemic and then these uh, enormous amounts of spending we're going to see. So tell me what the world is going to look like in 2030, if you can. You know, I'm going to use my, you know, optimist uh, hat. I'm, I, I, as you know, I'm always the, the glass half full person. So I, I do really hope that, you know, we see it, between the next, you know, six and 18 months, we'll have 10 to 20 trillion US dollars that will be invested into the recovery. And uh, again, I do hope that we will have a chance to mainstream climate into all the, the investment. Again, as you said, it's not kind of going to from one day to the other, but I do hope that we will have a better understanding of how can we go to, to this net zero future? How can we, you know, by 2030, have a really good understanding of, of how specific sectors have done and what are concrete solutions to kind of shift um, the, the overall, you know, different sectors towards a net zero uh, future. So I, I do hope that by 2030, uh, climate will, you know, not be a niche anymore. I, I hope by 2030, climate will have been mainstreamed across um, everyday decision making, and we certainly will, you know, be doing what we can uh, to, to help towards this direction. So, the, and it's interesting because you said you're going to put your optimist hat on, but then you said, we, "I hope we're going to be there." So, um, are you really optimistic, or are you just sort of couching it in optimistic language because you know that that sells? It's good. Look, I'm actually really optimistic. Just uh, to be frank, you know what I have heard in uh, over the last few months in terms of, you know, both the, for the first time, really the public wanting, you know, that there are changes, uh, uh, you know, in um, in the economy. But at the same time, you know, just hearing just a range of partners, colleagues um, from from different sectors, really talking about this as a pivotal moment that again, can become a turning point. It can become a tipping point that, you know, that is, but I think it can become a turning point. So um, I think it will take some political leadership. So that's certainly something, you know, we can only support again with the work we do. But um, again, uh, I, I hope, <laughs> but uh, it, it's me speaking not because I think that that sells, but because I really do believe that, that there is a, a unique moment now to, to make this happen. And Paul Roma talks about two different sorts of optimism, and I love it because it, it really encapsulates how I see it. You can be optimistic like a child hoping for a good Christmas present, or you can be optimistic like a child building a treehouse. Mm -hmm. Active optimism yeah. is building a treehouse. Uh, passive optimism is just hoping for a good present. So I think we have to be active optimists. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to Christiana Figueres about her views on, on optimism. Barbara, I said we were going to talk about gender. The International Council of Science said that you were one of the top 20 women influencers in climate and climate policy, but only one of the top 100 people overall. So if I do the maths, that suggests that there are 20 women and 80 men in the top 100. Now, that would be a big improvement over when I started New Energy Finance, where major energy conferences had somewhere around five to seven percent women in the leadership roles, um, but do we are we making progress fast enough so that we can really solve issues of 
gender and inclusion, and by the way, minorities and inclusion as well, at the same time and at the same speed that we need to solve the climate challenges? How are we doing? Yeah, I think that, that, that's a really good question, uh, Mike. And you know, just to do your last question, I, I don't think we're making progress fast enough. I, I, I don't think that there is still a, a full understanding that, uh, you know, that, that gender really matters when it comes to addressing climate change. And uh, I think it, you know, it's still kind of also not fully understood that women are also more vulnerable to climate change. And I'm just saying that the, because I kind of feel, you know, also in the work that we are doing, both in the lab, uh, where we always have a gender lens in terms of, you know, how can we come up with financial um, instruments that, that really kind of have an impact also um, uh, on, on women's uh, employment and women's jobs, uh, but also in my own organization where, where from the beginning on, I've tried to make sure that we keep gender um, in, uh, in mind when, uh, uh, when, when we do our hiring and, and like overall kind of our, our management structures. But I just feel on, on in, in the international uh, discussions, I, I don't see that we have been really kind of um, making progress fast enough on, on kind of addressing these issues and also minorities like fast enough. Um, so, um, you know, I, I don't think I have the, the full solutions here. So now, now I'm rambling. So I'm now I'm rambling. Okay. That's like, it's like, <laughs> yeah, but to me, there's a, uh, so I've written on this topic. So my views are well known that I don't think that we can address climate without also addressing the, the issues of inclusion, gender balance, and also yeah. uh, minorities. Um, but there are others that could say that the more sort of baggage you load into the climate train, the more you make it conditional on dealing with equality, uh, uh, economic equality, north-south equality, uh, colonial reparations, gender inequality, the, the more you put that into yeah. the climate train, the slower the train is going to go. And of course, there's another point of view. And as I say, I, the one I uh, subscribe to is no, actually, it goes faster. Um, how can we persuade more people? How can we, how can we win that argument? Yeah, I think we need still to, to try to give um, women a stronger voice. I, I don't see yet women being, you know, having, you know, you, you run into, you know, a, a group of women in, in this conversations again and again, but I feel we need to really open it up, you know, to, to other sectors and, and making sure that we also have the underlying analysis that, that shows actually the impact as always, you know, in all the work we've been doing, once you show actually the, the concrete impact uh, of um, addressing climate change, of um, investing in, in climate uh, activities and, and the, the concrete, you know, important role that, that, um, that women uh, and, and like minorities have in this context in order to make sure that, that we build a, a future that, that, that really kind of becomes more resilient. I think then you could uh, start winning the argument, but at the moment I just don't see um, that, you know, women uh, have the, the right, the, the full voice yet. I don't think they have the full voice. I absolutely agree with you. Don't, don't make any mistake. But I am struck by how many um, women were involved in getting the Paris Agreement across the line. Um, and, there, you know, you can think of uh, Anne Hidalgo, Paris Mayor. There's Laurence Tubiana uh, helping with the French negotiations. Yeah, there's, yeah. Figueres, there's you providing analysis. Uh, there's Amber Rudd, who at the time was the Minister of Energy in the UK. 
uh, you know, I, I, I could go on, but in many ways, the Paris Agreement was a women's agreement. Of course, you know, you end up with, uh, um, what was it, the, the uh, French foreign minister uh, that, that, uh, that, that did the actual signing, um, right. who's not a woman. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but, um, but there were so many influential women. Um, Connie Hedegaard, who laid much of the uh, foundation groundwork as uh, uh, commissioner at the EU. So I, I sort of see it as a, a you know, as a, you know, as, as a very sort of gender, well, actually, a, you know, that women played such a leadership role. But of course, right through the energy companies, the banks, the investors, the VCs, I mean, my goodness, when you start to look at new technology, it's 93% men still, huge problem. Well, so finance still, I mean, finance is the other part. I mean, you were talking about, you know, the, the energy, the energy conferences. I mean, when I started like on the finance, you know, becoming more on, on you know, finance uh, conferences, this is the same thing. I mean, there are still kind of very few women that are involved um, on these sides. I think, you know, women have been traditionally, I think more on the, you know, on, on the diplomatic side, you know, as you say, behind like, you know, triangle, enable deals and like making sure that you know you you kind of push the conversations in the right um in the right path but i think there's still a certain segment of um of um of the economy where women are not really represented no and uh, absolutely correct and you know i find it funny i just you know there's like i think i see you know one man involved in the paris agreement signing laurent fabius and i managed to blank his name i don't know what that says about me <laughs> That's right. now just look finally we're you know we, we we've had a fantastic conversation uh it's always super interesting and invigorating talking to you if anything i can do to help but i do want to ask you also um you were born in graz in austria arnold schwarzenegger i believe was also born in graz in austria you work on climate and are based in california and Arnold Schwarzenegger is based in California, works on climate. So do you kind of hang out? Well, hanging out, but you know, he certainly is like an idol for me, to be frank. You know, he grew up like very close to where I grew up in, in Austria, in Styria. And uh, again, you know, we, we all, you know, obviously watched him become famous and everything. And I think I was very impressed by, by when he started getting into the climate uh, conversations and really trying to use uh basically his success and you know being famous to to really kind of also shift some of the debate so i started them um, actually he invited me to the first austrian world uh, summit a few years ago uh where he really kind of started now a series of an annual event uh, in um, in vienna where he really brings together very high level leaders to kind of try to push the boundaries and and make sure that there is also i think that the public actually is also aware of these issues which again is i think something which is very much needed so yes i've had like uh, we've had a few dinners we speak in styrian and uh, he has invited me then to actually moderate um, uh, a small round table a telenova round table last year here in in, in los angeles where he he, he lives uh, with again like more a kind of a local uh, leaders both from the polit political and, and then the celebrities as well and and we have kind of continued to, to talk uh, particularly also through through his institute the Schwarzenegger Institute who's trying to do much more um, um, analysis and like um, support on on the political um, science side so yes um, I have to say I'm using I'm using that I'll be back uh, very often just to make sure <laughs>
Very good. When you say steerier, of course, I can immediately, through my mind, I can just see these kind of almost, uh, you know, tourism brochure like videos because it's a fantastic, beautiful part of the world. When we all get to travel again after COVID, it's one of the places I would uh, I'd very like to visit. Um, but it does feel like, interesting, you mentioned C40 cities earlier, but not um, Arnold Schwarzenegger has got his uh, C, what is it, his R20, R20. R20 regions. And you also talked about wanting to sort of popularize more, wanting to go mainstream and starting to, uh, to inform individual people's investment decisions with yeah. uh, data and information about climate finance. So maybe that's a, a way that you could work uh, together with, um, with, with Arnold and uh, uh, get your messages out. I don't know if you've thought about that. Oh yeah, I thought, again, you know, it's not that we're hanging out there, you know, frequently, but I mean, again, I, I met him a few times again. I'm very impressed by, by how he actually manages to, to attract attention. And I think uh, we would need people like him, but you know, also like others, like, you know, there is a, a few other celebrities that have kind of started to increase, you know, the, to, to voice their concerns about climate, about water, you know, there's Matt Damon, there's Leonardo DiCaprio, there's a few others. I do really think that if you want to shift kind of the masses and like I make sure that this is something that everyone is aware of we, we I think having their support could be uh, extremely uh, extremely kind of powerful. So Barbara I'm afraid we've reached the end of our allotted time uh, I try to keep these to about an hour you and I could keep talking forever and it's very invigorating and uh, there's plenty of ground still to cover uh, but we're going to leave it there I'm just going to leave you with an opportunity to use again those famous Styrian words. If I was to invite you back to a future episode of Cleaning Up, what would you say? Hasta la vista, baby. I'll be back. Barbara, thank you. Good night thank here you. in Switzerland. Good morning in San Francisco. Thanks so much. So that was Barbara Buchner joining us from San Francisco. Barbara is the Global Managing Director of the Climate Policy Initiative. And if we know how much is being invested in climate action around the world, it's all down to Barbara. So thank you for joining me for this fourth episode of Cleaning Up. I hope you'll join me next week. Our guest will be Kirsty Gogan. Kirsty runs something called Energy for Humanity. She also runs a consulting company called Lucid Catalyst. And she's one of the foremost experts in the policy and economics around nuclear power. So join me next week for episode five of Cleaning Up. Cheers. Mm -hmm.